the um, subject of this session is the godly man's love for the going of the church. We believe that as we put these together, that it would logically, we would talk about the gathering of the church before we would talk about the church's activity and going. And then, of course, we thought that, uh, that then it would be necessary for us to talk about actually what it takes to go in, in the sense of supporting and gifts. And then, uh, lastly, that God has given us some gifts, like Luther said, the spirit and the gifts are, I, are ours through him who with us sided. And so without these gifts, obviously, uh, we would not be able to do uh, what he's called us to do. Because our strength, as the hymn writer writes, our strength is unequal to our task. Because God has not called us as the church to do the possible. Anybody can do the possible. You can, you can get together, you can develop strategies, you can muster resource, and you can accomplish the possible. But God has called us to the impossible, and there's no way that we will ever be able to accomplish that in our flesh, and in our abilities, and in our energy. So our strength is unequal to our task. God has called us to do the impossible. But yet, with God, all things are possible. But only with him and through him. Now the church gathers, Brother Mark told us that there's a number of reasons we gather. We gather to worship. We gather to be with brothers and sisters in Christ. When, when I am weak, you are strong. When you're weak, I'm strong. And we provoke each other, as the King James says, provoke each other to good works. The word there actually is the Greek word to excite you. And one of the things about when you come, and, and I think that much of heaven's going to be this way. In fact, it's, it's going to be much greater because when you come to church and you see someone sitting in the pew or standing and singing, the praises of God. That uh, excites your soul with the one thing that we most, as Christians, as godly men, the one thing we most want to see in the world. And it keeps us motivated. This one thing we want to see above everything else is the glory of our God and His Christ. And when I see someone transformed by that power. I am moved to glorify God and to be excited about the power of this gospel. And I want the power of this gospel to go out into the world, not so much that we can prove ourselves right, though we are right, and if they don't uh, follow Christ, 
if they don't believe these things that we believe, that we live before them, they are wrong. We know that, but that's not the motivating factor. All that leads to is pride. The thing that leads to humility is to see how God has come to a sinner and has transformed him from a hater of God to a lover of God. Hallelujah, what a savior. See. Well, there is there is energy that comes with what God has done for us. God never saves, I mean, after God saves a person, that person is not a slug. That person is industrious. He has a purpose for the first time in his existence. He's out of the rut, and now he has a purpose, you see. And he knows something is going to happen when we do what God has commanded us to do. Something's going to be wonderful. People are going to come to Christ. They're going to be rescued. You know, we we say all the time about these people that are lost, We say they're lost, but they're really not lost in the sense of misplaced, but they are perishing. That's what the word means. They're perishing. And we have the love of Christ shed abroad in our heart by the Spirit of God that we cannot tolerate people around us perishing without saying something to them of the hope that's in us. You don't have to perish. Let me show you the wonder. And you know what? When we go out to witness, when we go out to visit, when we go out and try to confront people with the gospel, you know what they think? They think we're trying to take something from them. And all we are trying to do is to give something to them. Something more wonderful than any of us could ever put sentences and words together to describe. I think Wesley said something like, John, Wesley said something like, my heart was strangely warmed, strangely warmed. What does that mean? Well, I don't know if I can explain that to you in words, but I guarantee you this. If your heart has ever been strangely warmed by the power of Christ, you know exactly what he means. A godly man loves the going of the church. I mean, he just doesn't tolerate it. He just doesn't participate in it. But he loves it. He can't wait to be involved in it. And so here's the Lord. Before he leaves these poor hapless disciples who are still stumbling and bumbling, And he tells them, you know, that they need to go wait. And the Spirit will come. And here's his last words to them. And Jesus came, Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power. Now the word here, power, there are two 
major words in the Greek for power. One of them is dunamis. The word dunamis is where we get dynamite or dynamo. And both of them surely talk about the power of God. Dynamite's explosive power. Dynamo is consistent power, you see. But this is not dunamis. This is the other word that is translated power. Exousia. It, it's used by John in 1 John when it says, But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Authority, you see. To become the sons of God. All power, authority, exousia is given unto me in heaven. And in earth, not just heaven, our Lord's authority is this hour, not only in heaven, but in earth. We really have no trouble with the idea of the power in heaven, the authority in heaven. It's that authority in earth that sometimes gives us problems because you know what? It looks like he's not winning in earth. That's what it looks like. But he says, all power, authority, exousia, is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And even as Brother Mark said, you can't just jump in here and and take that one verse and, and get out of it what you should get out of it. So he is, he's moving. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. So there's the there. I had an old pastor friend of mine that said anytime you see a therefore in the Bible, you need to find out what it's there for. Therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, or behold, I am with you. All way or always. Literally, in the Greek, this is, and I am with you all the days. All the days. Every day. I don't know about you, always is good, but every day just sounds better to me. I'm with you every day. What about the days I'm unfaithful? I'm with you. What about the days when I'm sick? I'm with you. What about the days when I'm sinful? I'm with you. What about the days when I'm ineffective? I'm with you. 
every day, even unto the end of the Ionians. Some people translate that the age. King James translators, the world. But really it is the word for eternity. I am with you eternally. Now, when we read this passage, if you read it only in English and you don't have a teacher that can explain to you exactly what's going on in the Greek here, you may miss the point. Because in verse 19, it looks as if that is an imperative. And an imperative, indicative, imperative, an imperative is a command. If you can go all the way back to 10th grade English, you probably remember that, right? That that's an imperative. And that an imperative really doesn't need a subject because it's implied, right? So it's go. Well, what's the subject of that? Well, it's you. You go. Well, so it's a one-word sentence. But uh, so it looks like that's what it is. It looks as if the Lord is saying to these disciples that they should go. Commanding them to go. But that is not an imperative there in the Greek. In fact... It is a participle. Now, I'll really stretch your English knowledge if I ask you, what is a participle in English? Well, some of you who are a little brighter will say, well, a participle is a verbal adjective. In Greek, it's also a verbal noun. In other words, seeing is believing. Okay, are those, are those two verbs? Or are those two substantives? What's the subject of seeing is believing? Well, the subject is seeing because it describes the activity of seeing. And it is believing. It describes the activity of believing. In Greek... It is both, it can be both adjective and it can be both what they would call substantive or noun. So here's what the Lord is really saying. Being going ones, because you know what? You're going. You can't help but go. We don't live in this room. I, I've, I've listened to preachers all my life say, now look, Christianity's not lived in the four walls of the church. Well, duh. We know that. You don't live here. I remember as a little kid, uh, I was raised in church. Look, I came to consciousness in the nursery. Well, actually, it was the beginner's department, what they called the beginner's. And, and I didn't want to be there. I was not a very pliable child. I didn't want to be, and I wanted to be home with my mama or wherever my mama was, I didn't want to be in there. So, but they found out that they could preoccupy me
by letting me play records on the little record player. Remember, the little thing goes around, you could take the needle, and we had red records and yellow records. Y'all remember those? Well, I do. And they let me play these. I came to consciousness in that building as a beginner, as what they called us, playing records about Jesus. I came to consciousness. And I learned the song about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree because the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and said, Zacchaeus, we put our finger up. Zacchaeus, you come down. I'm going to your house today. And I remember singing, uh, Jesus loves me, this I know. Well, the Bible tells me so. We are weak, but he is strong. I remember as a child saying, yeah, that's right. We're weak, but he's strong. So I came to consciousness in church, listening to these stories and uh, hearing about the Savior but not knowing him at all. And those ladies that taught me Sunday school, I remember Miss Mullins who taught me Sunday school. And I remember seeing Miss Mullins in a grocery store one day. And I had this big urge to ask her, what are you doing here? You're a Sunday school teacher. Why are you not in the Sunday school class? Because I was just a child, you see. We don't live in the church. We are going people. Some people translate this, as you go. It could be translated very easily, being going ones, teach all nations. And then you'll see at the end, verse 20, teaching. Teach in 19, at the end, or at the beginning of verse 20, teaching. Two different words. The word translated teach here in 19 is the Greek word for Disciples, making disciples. There's the imperative. Going, make disciples. Because we are people that go. We can't help but go. We go to school. We go to work. We go to grocery stores and gas stations. We go to doctors and drug stores. We go to ballparks and skating rinks. We go, well, to whatever. We go to church. We go to restaurants. We are going people, you see. Now, These people in the New Testament, 
they were about to go further than they ever thought they were going to go because they're going to be run out of there by persecution. Some people believe that the church would have never got beyond Jerusalem if persecution hadn't happened and ran them out of there. Well, it ran out. Okay, so, so Philip goes to Samaria and he finds some people there and he preaches the gospel to them and does some miracles and they are saved. It's ultimately, the disciples come behind him and lay hands and they receive the Spirit. You see. The Apostle Paul is saved. Immediately, what does he do? He takes Barnabas and he goes all around the upper coast of the Mediterranean basin. He goes. He has this innate desire to go because he's a going one. And then if you'll look at this text, you'll see disciple all nations. Now that's interesting that the greatest commandment, the great commission, is given to us in terms of nations, ethnos, teach literally, disciple all nations. Baptizing them looks like another imperative. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, teaching them looks like another another imperative to observe. Well, baptizing and teaching are also participles. So here's what we are as the church. We are going ones. We are baptizing ones. We are teaching ones. That's our very nature. Can't help but do it. Just like what Brother Mark read us there in the 10th chapter of Hebrews. Provoke one another. Provoke them. How do you provoke someone? Well, I've provoked a few people in my life. Negatively. uh, Often by telling them the truth. And I've provoked them. And they've got angry. And they would say, well, you just think you know everything. You ever heard that? Well, you just think you know everything. I said, well, I tell you what, I don't know everything. But I do know what I know. I know that much. I know what I know. And I know that either you're wrong or I'm wrong or we're both wrong, but both of us can't be right. Well, that provokes them. Well, I don't want to do that tonight to you. I want to provoke you to love and to joy. I want to provoke you to be better, to be holy. I want to provoke you to such a degree that you would want to go tonight and tell someone about the wonder of this Christ that has been so good to you. See, Well, we are baptized. If the church goes, and it will, then the church will baptize. And the church will teach. Because that is our nature. And... The godly man 
loves to have it so. Now, where do we go? Well, I think we have to look at this in two ways. I think we have to look at the institution, the institution of the church. The church is an institution. As an institution, the church must remain in that sphere of government that the Lord has given to us as the church. Okay, so institutionally, what is the church? Well, the church institutionally is the institution of evangelism and missions. And, and many people, when they see when, you know, this great commission, they just limit it to that. That we just go out and we find lost people and we persuade them, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade them, you see. We persuade men. And when, through the power of the Spirit, they are persuaded, then we baptize them, you see. I had a man one time to stand in the back of this church after he heard me preach from this pulpit and told me, that street preaching is the greatest preaching. Well, I didn't take it as an insult, seeing as I wasn't street preaching, I was pulpit preaching. But he said, street preaching is the greatest preaching. I said, really? They hate it when I say that. Really? Yes. I said, well, let me ask you something. What's your purpose if you go street preach? What's your purpose? Well, we're going to win men to Christ, okay? We're going to win men to Christ through street preaching, yes. Then what are you going to do with them? Uh, we're going to send them to you. Well, it seemed like to me, then that would be the greatest preaching, wouldn't it? Because we are baptizing and teaching people, you see. Well, the institution of the church is mission of angels, but also the institution of the church is education. You realize that? Do you realize that the government, state government, federal government, civil government, is not the God-established institution of education? And when the government the state government and the federal government, civil government, gets into education, what do they do to it? Look, the only thing that civil government does well is make war. And when they get into things that they should not be in, guess what they do? They make war on it. Every legal action of every modern legislator or legislative body that have passed laws concerning the family in the 20th century has wrecked it. Right? You've been asleep. To such a degree that they say two men can marry each other. Now, they didn't give us that for a vote, did they? 
No, these black-robed justices, who's supposed to be the weakest of all of these things, pronounced it. Well, I don't care if every court and every nation and every city and all the world makes that pronouncement. It's false. It's not right. How can you educate a child and ignore your faith? The great Presbyterian preacher of the 19th century, R.L. Dabney, says, Whatever you do, do not allow the civil government to get a hold to your school system because in education there has to be religion taught. And if they get into education, it won't be Christianity that's taught. Our faith. Thirdly, the institution of the church is the charitable institution. Because we won't subsidize sin in charity, you see. But when the civil government gets hold to charity, what happens? You know what they do? They make people poor, not richer. They grow poverty. They don't defeat it because they're ill-equipped to do any of this. You see. Well, the wall of separation, you've heard this, separation of church and state, the wall of separation must indeed, I believe with all my heart, must be maintained. The church infringing on the state, it's not something that should happen. But you know what? That is not anything that's ever been a problem in the United States of America. The problem is the other way around. The state infringing upon the church. And when Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson letter of of January 1, 1802, to the Danbury Baptist Association, in which he references this now famous phrase, the wall of separation of church and state, was aimed at the state, not at the church. However, Jefferson's statement has never stopped the United States government or any state government from infringing upon the sphere of the church. Well, I don't think that I could talk about the church's responsibility in society without making that point because we are in a mess today, this very hour. And the cause of it is an out-of-control civil government. Even as Ronald Reagan said, the most dangerous or fearful words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Now, the church ought to be in, in as an institution, ought to be an intra-sphere, ought to participate in intra-sphere activity. 
But the church is more than an institution. The church is also individuals. You, the man of God. And the church legitimately enters into every other governmental sphere, the family and the state, through individuals. As they take their responsibility to live for God in this world seriously. No godly man would enter upon his responsibility as a husband, father, judge, representative, congressman, senator, or president without his Christian faith, which gives rise to his judgment in justice and in morality. Do you forget you're a Christian when you walk in a voting booth? Man, that's when you really need to remember you're a Christian. Now, I heard somebody, you probably heard this just this week. I think it was yesterday, maybe the day before. One of these talking heads on TV, a white guy said this. Rural, white Christian America is the greatest danger to democracy. He's right. Put yourself in their place. What do they not want to see? I'll tell you what they don't want to see. They don't want to see a godly man taking seriously his responsibility in these areas that God has led him into. Whether it be business, whether it be industry, whether it be military, whether it be politics, whether it be education, Because you realize our forefathers never wanted us to have democracy. They talk about democracy as if democracy is the greatest thing. I mean, that, that was Woodrow Wilson. I mean, we're spreading democracy. No. What kind of government did you give us, Mr. Franklin, was the question by the lady. And he said, a republic, ma'am, if you can keep it. And see, that's what we are. We're not. We do not believe in the tyranny of the majority. What we believe in is certain rights given to us by God and protected by civil government. They don't give us these rights. In fact, I heard someone just say the other day, he says, well, these Christians believe they get their rights from God. They don't believe the government gives them rights. <laughs> right? You're correct. I agree. Amen. In terror sphere activity is where you are. Look, 
I'm not telling you to go there. I'm telling you, you're already there. You have already gone into these spheres. And what are you going to do? Are you going to forget your faith, you see? No, no. The man of God, the godly man, loves the fact that God is using him not only in the institution of the church, but that God is using him as God sends him into these various places that he might be salt and light. We don't need to salt salt. We don't need to light light. We need to salt the unsavory, and we need to light the darkness. It's easy. And see, that's what most of fundamental Christianity or fundamentalist with a capital F Christianity does. Most of it just simply curses the dark. Look, I've been listening to preaching all my life. I've heard preachers wax wonderful and wonderfully and eloquently on the glory of Christ and the wonder of heaven and the magnificence of grace. And you couldn't get a holy grunt out of the congregation. But you start letting them lambast something, say something negative, began to criticize, and all of a sudden the crowd starts warming up. Amen, amen. You got that right, brother. Amen. I've seen people jump off the front pew, come halfway to the pulpit, and point to the preacher and say, Hey, preacher, you're right. I thought I was in a Pentecostal gathering, but it was Baptist. Look, we're there. You're already there. Light a candle. You're already there. Speak some truth. Sprinkle some salt, you see. Make something savory of this thing. Learn how to be wise. If any man lack wisdom, let him pray unto the Lord who giveth to every man liberally. We are leaven. How much leaven does it take to puff up a piece of dough? Well, it doesn't take much, just a little bit of leaven. And what does it do? It works through the whole loaf. We're there. But what good are we when we say and don't do What good are we when we see them dying? And we are quiet. What good are we? But the godly man, you felt it. I know you felt it. Because I felt it. Now, that doesn't mean that often we get the opportunity to say it. But when something goes awry at work or when I'm in a crowd or when I'm at a restaurant and I hear the, the cussing and the filth, I may not be able to get an opportunity to say something, but it rises up in me. Oh, how I would like to be like my friend R.F. Gaden. 
Or if Gates was sitting in a restaurant eating his lunch, minding his business, and the guy on the table next to him was loud. And he was using the Lord's name in vain and cursing and saying vile things. And RF said, well, I tell you this. If he says one more thing like that, I'm going to say praise Jesus. So sure enough, the guy did it. And RF said, praise God. God said, surely that guy's not saying this against me. So he keeps talking and he says it again. He says, bless Jesus. And the guy's beginning to get the hint, right? Because every time he said something filthy, RF is saying, praise the Lord. And the manager of the restaurant came over to my dear friend, Brother RF Gates, and said to him, you're going to have to hold it down, sir. To which RF responded, well, I can tell you this. When he stops blaspheming Jesus, I'll stop praising him. Now, I'm not saying we get an opportunity to do that. And you may get in a fist fight over the grits. I don't know. Tony and I know about a guy showing up trying to provoke a fight. I don't know. But I can tell you this. You're there already. I remember at a restaurant, there were four of us. We bowed our head and one said the blessing. And I remember a waiter coming over to us and said to the one, thank you for doing that. Thank you. That helps me. The man of God is already going. So what should he be doing? And it's not, I'm not trying to persuade you to do this because you want to do it. I'm just trying to encourage you to be brave and do it. I can tell you one of the weakest statements of faith that I've ever read is the Southern Baptist, Baptist Faith and Message. But they even get this right. In Article 15, here's what it says. The Christian and social order, all Christians are under obligation to seek to make the will of Christ supreme in his own lives or in our own lives and in human society. Every Christian should seek to bring industry, government, and society as a whole under the sway of the principles of righteousness, truth, and brotherly love. And the last thing that this verse says is that we should be making disciples. Now, what is it to make disciples? I had a man come up to me one time in this very auditorium and, and said, Brother Kerry, what is your discipleship program for your men, for the men of your church? What's your discipleship program? I said, uh, preaching. 
He said, yeah, yeah. I said, no, 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 preaching. There are those that think what we ought to do is get together and buddy up with them. That we ought to go on a camping trip with them or a fishing trip or we ought to be around them. We need to buddy with them, have a buddy program. Just like Jesus did with his disciples. Well, let me ask you a question. How did Jesus walking with those disciples for three and a half years, how'd that work out? When he needed to witness in the kangaroo court, where were they? One of them was outside being cowered down by a little girl. Cussing and swearing. I don't know him. And one of them is trying to give the blood money back. And went and hung himself. And the rest of them fled, for the scripture says, and nobody was with him when he was crucified. But John says, the women showed up. The women showed up. And John was so embarrassed by them, he finally sulked back in. And then they hid and they were afraid that the soldiers would come get them. Until what? Jesus says, you tarry. You tarry. And when Pentecost has fully come, the Spirit's going to fall on you. And when the spirit fell, what happened? The weak, afraid, cursing, the ones that were cowered down by girls or by a girl, stood up boldly and said, You. with wicked hands crucified the son of glory. And his blood is on you. What's the difference? What was the difference? Spirit, they became men of God and they were pleased and loved going. You won't become a man of God by going. You'll just prove you are a man of God when you go and do.
Let's pray.